0: Hey, man. Good to see you on. Um, everybody just got blinded up the screen. I think I've turned the, turned the brightness down. It's good. It, uh, um, if that was run at 100%, you couldn't sit there. It runs about 14%. So that's running only about 14%. It's, uh, it's so bright. It's so good. We had our uh, level 1 TT here yesterday. We were about 60, I think. Um, roughly 60 people doing it. Um, I think we were about 14 international people coming in on Zoom. And uh, there was Californians there who had got up at 2.30 in the morning to join us. And uh, yeah, I know it was really good. Uh, but what I loved yesterday was uh, Julia Muir. Just pray for Julia. Her daughter-in-law's really ill right now with cancer and um, the family are, are, are struggling. Yeah, just pull the game down a wee bit, Ashton, would you? Um, the, uh, uh, but she was able to come in here on Zoom yesterday and we put her on the big screen. And what was so cool was our technology really worked really well. And I have a big shout-out to do. He, he hates this, but Ian Watt is just, uh, he, he's, you know, He's just a gift to our church, people like Xander, and we're so privileged to have these folks, but listen to me, they need help. Um, I, I'm, you know, it, it is important that when we stand up here and say we need help for vigils that actually you, you get involved, and you're sitting out there going, well, that's not really what I can do. Trust me, we'll teach you, and uh, I really want to encourage you, please join up and help that team. They. Uh, you know, there's a dedicated group of people here, but they're on every Sunday right now, and we need to be able to change that. Even if you could come in and just do one Sunday a month and uh, figure that out. So volunteer. It's not too difficult, honestly. None of this is too hard. We made it really simple. But please, if you're coming to church, just don't come and receive. Please come and serve. That's a really important thing that, that we need to do in our church. And, and trust me, you get to know more people and have a bit of crack and a bit of fun, and I think our people are, are usually a, a bit of banter. So uh, it's really good. If you're online, you're really welcome. Um, We're in the middle of a series called Eden, The Original Design, and um, I I want to caveat today by saying that for the next two weeks, uh, I've tried my best to keep this a U, but it's probably going to be a 15, okay? And there's moments that might even creep into 18, so please be warm. So if you're online or or you're listening online and you're starting to watch this like a regular Sunday afternoon, and you're going to hear some words today that you haven't heard from church... Because one of the problems is that church isn't teaching this stuff. Can I ask you a question? If church isn't teaching about sexuality, who is? I'll just hang that one there and let you have a have a chat. But just to review a little bit from last week, our our passages for, for this scripture is is this, and this is why this is so important. And it's why it's important. I mean, even just yesterday hearing Julia speak about level one again, it, it's quite it's quite a mind blower what the first six chapters of Genesis actually has to teach us about humanity and why we're in such a mess today, can I encourage you not just to go and read Genesis, but to go and grab a concordance or a a commentary and and study Genesis and read what it actually says. Uh, Read between the lines. Um, You know, how many of you know you can read a book, but you have to read between the lines to get the story? Uh, And Genesis has a, a story that is so much deeper than what you might think about. But Jesus comes on and he calls the church to grab hold of something that that was set in motion all those years ago and he wants us to hold on to it. But what do we do in a world that really struggles to hold on to the fact that they don't even believe Adam and Eve were were real people? Matthew five, thirteen, fifteen says, You are the salt of the earth. Everybody say you, you. are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You also are the light of the world. Everybody say you. Yes. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Everybody say you're that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Say good deeds. Good deeds. Whose good deeds is it? Yours. <laughs> if you are here last week, uh, I talked a little bit about um, how you have to make up your mind as I go into this series, what, what you set your, your worldview on, H- how you define what you believe. You see, uh, the world wants to tell you what you should believe, but many of you know that the world's ways aren't exactly going really well for them out there right now. And that actually the Bible uh, gives us valuable information, but when a world says that you're dinosaurs and what you believe uh, needs to be taken out of history, then we come into conflict. And you have to decide, before I even say anything today, you have to decide where you take your values your belief systems, your structures for life from? Do you take it from the world or you take it from the Holy Spirit and Scripture? Um, uh, I'm not telling you what you should believe. I'm just telling you that if you believe the world system, you're gonna very quickly run into problems as a Christian. I told you what we believed in journey, that everyone was welcome, nobody was perfect, and everything and anything is possible. And I really believe that, that anybody here, listen to me, I don't care how sinful you are, You're welcome at this church. I don't care what lifestyle you live. You will not be judged if you come to this church. Nobody will hang you over hell and tell you what a dirty person you are. Um, It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you of your sin. It's my job to introduce the Holy Spirit. And if you understand that and get that, then it's the Holy Spirit's job to pull you out of that sin. And if you come to me going, John, I want to come out of this, you will get all the help and all the resources to be able to do that. Does that make sense as a church? That's so counter church Because church says, come to my gang, and if you look like me, dress like me, talk like me, and act like me, and pretend like everything's really okay, and there's no sin going on in my life, then you can belong in this little hub. That's kind of what church does. And I'm often gobsmacked by people who come in and go, yep, you've got drug dealers in your church, and I don't know whether that's true or not. I really hope it's not true. But people often say that about us. That makes me really happy. And I told you that if you could belong in this church, that the moment you step into leadership, the moment that you cross this line on the stage of you helping kids or, or become any leader involved in this church, there's a higher calling in your life. And by the same standard that God sets for me as a senior pastor or our elders, we also set for you. That way then there's no gray. I think sometimes it's, there's a hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. God calls you to a higher calling, whether you like it or not. I didn't say it. I really wish it wasn't true because it'd make my life a lot easier, but it's true. And that's what scripture says. And then I shared a little bit about church and state. Now, for American friends, if you're listening online, um, this is a very different culture to what you've gone on in. But church and state, I thoroughly believe, needs to be separate. I'll tell you why, for 40 years, we've had Christians tell our country how they should live their lives, have the same moral value and ethics that we have as Christians. Now, I would really like that in society, but it's very difficult to tell someone who's an atheist and doesn't believe in God that they have to believe what we believe. And here's the problem. For 40 years, the church has told society what it should believe. And then they got really peeved off. And guess what's happening now? They're going to chuck the Christians out of power. And the heathens are going to become the people in charge. And guess what they're going to do to the Christians? Yeah, you guessed it. They're going to do to us what we've done to them. And it's really important that you understand the difference between church and state. Now, hear me. If you've got a passion for politics, a passion for for change, I actually believe we're meant to be cultural transformation that you are called to politics or called to that, then we will pray for you, send for you, go do it, go rock on. And I do think we need to be influenced in government. I think we want to have an influence. And honestly, I think our church locally here, we have a really good influence on what happens in our local community and government. We've got great friends who are in politics, have atheist friends. They've come to the church uh, and they have lots of conversation with us. So it's not that I'm, 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 I'm anti-politics. I just don't think that we should set religion in place and then tell our community this is how they should Live their lives because the moment that they come in charge, they tell us how how we should live our lives. I don't think any government should tell a church what they should or shouldn't believe. And you know the problem right now, that's exactly what's going on in society. And you have to decide. Can I recommend before I go any further today a really good website? It's a website called Moral Revolution. Um, it was created by by Bethel Church, but in there there is an awful lot of conversation, um, chat, talk. Uh, really open and honest conversation um, in regards to how to raise our kids, ideas around around kingdom thinking, around sexual identity, who we are uh, as people and that God actually made sex and it was good. Um, So that's a really good website, Moral Revolution. I really encourage you, if you want to know more, there's lots of really good information on there. You can go and have a look. I'm sure there's plenty out there, but uh, that's a particularly good one. Um, And if you've got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four. Now, this is where you buckle up, okay? Because this is where the U reading ends and we move into the 15, okay? Just your pre-warned. Behold, uh, I send you the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Listen to this. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. I said last week that we were living historically um, and how I got to this series in a a primarily... Uh, fatherless generation. And even though your father might have been there, most kids will come in to our to room where people come in and say even though my dad was there, he wasn't really there. And that I said to you from last week that from the war, there was a breakdown in the central family unit. I give you the explanation that I felt that the Lord had shown me about that. And um, I don't think I'm wrong when it comes to that. Though I do want to say this, that if you had a really good family and a good dad and a, someone who taught you how to do that, you are so blessed. C- can I tell you, if you had a family who stayed together, you don't know how blessed you are. You've, you know, and I'm not saying that to put those of you who didn't have a family in a way to make conflict, but you need to understand how blessed you are whenever, whenever this has been a high value. And even when you have a good family that did stay together, sometimes they're screwed up too many of you know that and i always notice that one of the things that i think and i think it's prophetic i really do i think i think there's a prophetic mantle on our church for the restoration of family I, I i you know this isn't just about a prophetic word there's sometimes just a prophetic unction atmosphere that our job is to restore family and i kind of feel the weight every time that i speak about the father restoring the hearts to men. That is something that I have a passion about. Um, primarily probably because um, you know my dad died young and I had this need in me uh, of someone who needed a father. And I sought out spiritual fathers who I wanted them to be my daddy. And the problem with that is it created a problem because guess what they're not? My daddy. Now it's important that you understand the difference between your father and the one that you have even though you don't like him. And spiritual fathers, I've stepped into many people's lives over the years and became a spiritual father, but there's a point whenever I have to kick them in the backside and send them packing and say, hey, I'm not your daddy. You need to sort it out with your real daddy, not me. And it is important that you understand the context of that. But our job is to understand the family unit and the restoration. And one of the things that I think um, that, that, that is important that we understand is that that you differentiate what the Lord says about family over what the community and the world has to say about family. You see, they've redefined what a family unit is. Family is an interesting word. Historically, if you go through Scripture, study what family means. It's this idea of your oikos. It's the people who are the most significant to you. And the further you go out into friends, the less significance they become. And I really believe that that was God's idea from the creation of time. That he put us into a family, give us instructions how we should build that family, and that's God's desire for us. That's what I'm gonna call normative. But many of you know that, that because of what's going on in the world today, that the destruction of family has been depleted. And I'm gonna use the term subnormative. Now that doesn't mean to say that you're wrong, bad, or terrible. It just means that life probably is going to be a little bit more harder in some of the contexts because God said if we do it this way, we'll be good, but if we don't know how to do that, it will cause a struggle. And you only need to come and sit in a counseling room with us any day of the week to have a conversation with someone to realize just how true that actually is. And I think it's important that our children learn to grow up knowing what God thinks about social issues, that our children know about what God thinks about sex, and our children should know what God thinks about women. It's really, really important. And the problem with the church is this, is that there's not many people or churches today teaching this stuff. Um, last year, I, got a, I was shocked um, at one of our levels in theotherapy, uh, Julia asked, other, there's what, what, I think maybe four or five other pastors in the room, Asked him, Are any of you teaching sex from the front? I put my hand up. I was the only pastor out of the five of us that was teaching sex from the front of church. I was actually gobsmacked. And I think there's reasons for that. And it is important that we're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to have the answer in this world for the darkness. And if we're afraid to talk about the very thing that God gave us, then we've attached shame to something that the Lord never attached shame to. And it is important that, that you, you actually face shame today. And I'm going to talk a lot about that today because it's really important. But I think when we're meant to be the light of the world, it's important that we're talking about sex. It's important that we're saying, this is what the Lord thinks about sex. This is what he gave us. And it's important that we understand and learn. The problem is, up to this point, we've been telling the world what we're against. We actually haven't been telling them what we're for. We tell them what they shouldn't do, rather than what we, they should do. We, we, we've given them what they shouldn't do instead of going, actually, if you do this, this is a much better version. And we've allowed secular society to come in now. And here's what's going on: they are absolutely repulsed and repugnant at what Christians believe about this stuff. Oh, that's that's old school. And I think there's a reason for that. And the secular society is repulsed by the church. Why? Particularly in Ireland, though it's, it's broader than this. The first thing that took place probably about 25 years ago was when Ireland had the sexual abuse scandal of priests. And the church not only didn't deal with its own guilt, in many cases it brushed abuse under the carpet. And, and to the church's shame, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people left the church. Why? Because it didn't look any different to what the world was. And instead of coming out and putting their hands up going, we screwed up, they lied and they buried and they created a system of people went, I don't want to belong to that anymore. Why? Because the church didn't look any different to the world. They didn't see us as light. They saw us as hypocrites. And the Presbyterian Church in Ireland decided to break ties to the Church of Scotland because the the church in Scotland, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, decided that it was was a good idea to redefine marriage. And the redefinition of marriage has, has caused an awful lot of debate going on in society. And what's the church not doing? We're terrified to have a conversation about it. But if we actually believe that the right answer is the right answer and actually bring it with hope, then all of a sudden what we have to say becomes really, really important to the world. Let me ask the question, are you meant to be the light of the world? Why are we so afraid to have these conversations? Because it seems like it should be defense rather than the right version. Whenever we redefine what Scripture has to say and the world tells us how to redefine it, we will end up in a powerless, hopeless useless church and we wonder why churches are full of powerlessness today. Do you not want to be a church that's powerful? That when we talk to young people, they get mind blown because the version that was created in Genesis is actually so mind-blowingly amazing that they just go, Oh my goodness, I never heard it like that today. Well you're gonna hear about that today as we go along. And I'm also really concerned that we're not teaching our children how to be light of the world. Listen, if your parents here today and, and listen Bringing a kid up these days is crazy. It really is. But if you can get them to 18 and uh, they don't kill each other, you're doing really well. I mean, Adam and Eve weren't, evil, weren't even able to do that. And, um, and, uh, but, but, you know, we need to teach them how to be light of the world. But the problem is, is, they're going into a world that doesn't understand the light anymore. And they conform. Why? Because kids today have to conform. But imagine that we could teach them the truth. And that they became the catalytic believers in schools and, and where they're at, that actually the people would conform to where they're at. Is that not the hope of the world? And what have we done? We've seen that we're defeated when we're not defeated. There's a victory to be had here, and we need to start teaching our kids the right way, not the wrong way. And instead of, um, um, you know, we're meant to be flavor and seasoning, and we need to teach our kids how to be that flavor. And it feels more to me like, like Christianity reacts to immorality instead of responding to God's passion. And maybe it's possible that, that we're supposed to be light of the world, and to bring this light, we've got to bring re- revelation. Is light not revelation, and assault not um, uh, uh, pre- preservation? Is that not what we're meant to be doing? So we, we not only tell the world what God thinks about subjects, we actually have to back it up in what we really truly believe. And I'm wondering how many of you responded to what God says about sexuality? You see, the world has a perversion. And it came in because people didn't know what God thinks about sex. Because everyone else is teaching them and we're not. You know that there's something troubling in the world when a 10 or 11 year old comes into one of our counselors addicted to pornography. And here's the problem. You're not shocked at that anymore. There's something wrong with the world when a 10 year old is touching an 8 year old inappropriately. And what I find is that most people don't actually know how to tell a young person or even have a conversation with them about sex. That the world is awkward about it. And if the world's awkward about it, how much more is the, has the church become awkward about it? Let me ask you a question. Do you talk to your kids about sex? If you're not, who is? Listen, the world perverted sex. Perversion. It means they have a wrong version of something. How many of you know God celebrates sex? In fact, God gave it to humanity. And I believe that the world perverts sex and religion shames it. Let me say that again. The world has perverted sex and religion shames it, but the kingdom of God celebrates it. How many of you know that there was sex before sin? Let me say that again. How many of you know there was sex before sin? here we go. <laughs> Is it interesting how much we've attached shame to the things that the Bible never attaches shame to? I mean, how many of you know that we're called as Christians to be circumcised of the heart? That's what Paul says in you New Put you up your hands up if you know you're supposed to be circumcised of the heart. But how many of you know in the Old Testament that in order to be circumcised, they didn't do the circumcision of the heart, that, that God talked a lot about circumcision of something else. And He didn't attach any shame to this. In fact, What he did was he talked regularly about a man's foreskin being cut off the end of his penis. And what do we do? Oh, no, John just said the P word. (laughs) (sighs) Did John just say foreskin from church? And the nervous laughter tells me that there's shame in the room. You see, here's the thing about circumcision. God spoke about it regularly in Scripture. Did you know the only way that men could come into manhood and come into knowing God was to have the end of their penis cut off? (laughs) And what do we do? Oh, no. Listen, there's a story in Scripture that before the Israelites went into the Promised Land, they had to go through a city called Gilgad and they had to have a men's meeting. All right? Now, I know what goes on in our men's meeting, but I can tell you this isn't ever gone on in our men's meeting. And you remember the story. The men had to be circumcised before they could go into the promised land. Isn't it funny how God's not ashamed to speak about man's penis? In fact, the Bible speaks about it. And you can imagine going to the men's meeting and Aaron's standing up there and go, right, lads, you ready? That's our subject tonight. Circumcision. Let's Let's get them out. <laughs> and I'm going to get a, a really sharp knife. And I'm going to stick it on it and I'm going to cut the end of it off. You know, imagine coming home to the missus that night. Well, how'd the men's meeting go? What'd you talk about tonight? <laughs> and the Bible speaks about sex. And anatomy, the whole way through from Genesis to Revelation, God told us in the Bible to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. And I love that our children are, 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 uh, are running around rampant in the church. Can I tell you something? You knew how they got here, right? That didn't just, just, a stork didn't drop them off in the doorstep. God was the one that gave you a sex drive. How many of you know that? Hands up if you know God gave you a sex drive. See, for the rest you didn't put your hands up, where did you get yours from? <laughs> <laughs> Do you actually know what a sex drive is? How many of you know what a sex drive is? It's a great question to ask yourself, I've been asking that a long time. What is a sex drive? It means you want to have sex with somebody. And when we ask that question, the heads go down. Because we can't talk about sex drive. Because if we talk about sex drive in the church, we we'll corrupt our children. <laughs> it means you want to have sex with somebody. Anybody not got a sex drive? If you do, Elaine's in the front row here. She will help you find it. <laughs> Oh, I'm hitting all the biggies today. Therapeutically, of course. Can I, can I tell you, there was a movement came through the church in the 70s and 80s that I think was the demonic spawn of hell. Particularly in America, but here as well. The purity movement, promise keepers and promise rings. I, I go to a school over in Reading, Every now and again. And one of the things that I see regularly there in a school of two and a half thousand people is their inability to get together. You know, all these girls and all these boys, everything in common, same theology, same thinking, and it is a disaster when it comes to relationships. Now, why is that? Well, except for David and Alicia, because they, they find each other in school. Go you. We have some successes. But generally speaking, and I've discovered something, all right? Because of shame and embarrassment and religion and the promise rings, women at a very young age switched off their sexual drive because they were honoring the Lord. And there's one thing I know about men. Let me give you a biological lesson. Men don't know how to turn their sex drive off. (laughs) Some have got more sex drive than others. And here's the problem. If you have a pretty girl in school, you come along and go, oh, she's pretty. But if she's turned her sex drive off, there's one thing I know, that guy won't hang around too long. And because of shame, because of embarrassment, and because of a promise that they should never have made before God, they flick something off inside of them. And then they wonder why they're 35, wondering why they're they're, they're alone, wondering what's wrong with them because the church has done an absolutely terrible job at helping us understand what this is about. You see, the goal isn't to get rid of your sex drive. You can't, God give it to you. It is that we're meant to manage our appetite. it is important that you get your head around that. The goal isn't to get rid of sex drive. God's not ashamed of your sex drive. He's the one that gave it to you. But the world has gone and got itself in a whole mess to do with sexuality. And it's funny when we talk about divorce, no one has a problem talking about divorce, but people have a problem talking about marriage sometimes. One of the top reasons for marriage breakup is sexual incompatibility. You you come and sit in in the concert with us. We know that. Things that go on, why? You don't often see that written on the divorce paper, do you? Got divorced because we can't, you know, we're sexually incompatible. Nobody's talking about it. And if the society isn't talking about it, how much more is the church not talking about it? Who's teaching society about sex? The people who perverted it. And then we wonder why our kids believe what they believe today. You know, we send little Johnny to school to learn about sex because we're ashamed to tell him at home and he goes to the school system and they start telling Johnny uh, about what's going on. And I, you guessed it, it's parts of the UK today. They, they have to. There's no choice. They have to teach Johnny about bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, every sexual thing that there is. All the avenues of sexuality is being taught at school. Why? Because it's, you're not doing your job at home. And we send Johnny out and we, we say to the school, go ahead. Or we slip a little book in. Or we have the talk. I didn't even have the talk. I got handed a medical book, but you spend more time looking at the pictures than reading anything on it. <laughs> and we send Johnny to school and we teach him and, and they tell him this and then they come back and go, Who told you that? Whose job is it to teach our children about sex? It's yours if you're a parent. But what do we do we're not doing? No, we're abdicating responsibility because our own shame is attached to it. We come into church and we don't want to talk about sex because the church, are, they are like, shh, don't talk about that, isn't this church? You're not supposed to be talking about that in church. Talk about God, I am. He said, go forward, be fruitful and multiply. It was the first commandment God gave us in the Bible. So many of us, um, God gave us our sex drive and he is not ashamed of it. Why are you? In fact, he celebrates, why aren't you? And don't you know that it was God's idea to make it fun? Amen? (laughs) (laughs) But here's the problem. If you're not married or you're divorced, how do you manage your sex drive? Can I say something to you? I don't think God's any way embarrassed or ashamed of you having a sex life. Outside of the concepts that the church has taught very poorly over the years about what that should look like. Now again, listen to what I'm saying. It's not that we should get rid of our sex drive. It's that we have to learn how to manage our appetite. And how many of you know that when we teach our kids about sexual historically, this is what the church have told them. You're not going to like it. That's bad. Don't do it. It's painful. I heard this one, you might go blind. <laughs> you could catch a disease and it might fall off and stop working. I kid you not. See, that's the way that we, t- we have historically told our kids about sex. God doesn't have a sex story like that. Aren't you glad that God didn't make us sit on an egg for nine months like a bird? <laughs> I mean, think about it. How many of you would be here today if you had to go home and sit on, a, on an egg for nine months? You know, it's like, you know, it's like, hey, I sat on it for the last three days. It's your turn. Best contraception ever. You don't need to have birth control if we thought like that. Aren't you glad that God set it up a different way? Why? Because the world has perverted sex and religion has shamed it. Religion says, oh, be careful how you say that. Let's whisper it in the corners of our home. And I wonder why our children are being enticed by sex because no one else is telling them the right version. They're hearing the perversion. And we speak about sex one time in youth group. And I remember this, sending home a letter to the parents to ask permission to teach in a youth group um, about the things that we're doing. I got a phone call from one of the parents a long time ago. And she said, "My, my son I don't think my 15-year-old son's ready to hear about this. I'm like, what planet are you living on? The kids today could tell you about sex, and they know more than you do. And the principle, there's a principle at play here, and it's really important you get this. It's called first principle or prototypic thought. Whoever teaches a subject first will inevitably be the thing that that's what you will believe. So if little Johnny goes to Henry in P6, and Henry's got a little bit more experience on the sexual stuff. Henry starts telling Johnny about sex. What Johnny will define about sex is what Henry's told him. And then he comes home and and he has a conversation when he's 12 with you, and and you've told him the truth. And he's going, no, but that's not right. Why, because the principle of prototypic thought is that that's what was taught at a young age. And if Henry taught him, you can bet your bottom dollar that that's wrong. Why? Because you abdicated your responsibility. You should be the first Can I tell you, we started to talk about sex with our kids since they were knee-hyped to a grasshopper. I used to go fishing with Ethan. What's spawning daddy? Oh, well, that's when a fish comes up along and, 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 and the eggs go in and, and he puts the sperm over the top of them and, and then the next conversation goes something like, Well that's how fish do it. How do how do how do mummies and daddies do it? Well, we you we know, in an act of love, we get along and, and, and a man takes his penis and puts it inside a vagina and and uh, oh. what's wrong and a man puts his penis into a vagina and he injects semen in there and uh, and sometimes there's little sperm swim all the way up in and then they, they get into mummy's egg and and the miracle of life takes place and what are we doing we're cringing like crazy because john just said 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 a full version of sex that god created from the front of church Maybe you need to deal with your shame. Maybe you need to deal with your sexual appetite. (laughs) Wouldn't it be easier to lay a foundation in life? Because here's the truth, Ethan and Erin, and they're sitting with their teenage friends today, probably a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) But can I tell you something? They're not embarrassed or shamed about sexual chat. They're not afraid to come to us and have a conversation. Many nights we sit up and have conversations. Ethan has a great girlfriend now. She's dying in her seat. (laughs) Some of our conversation at night is about sex. Why shouldn't it be? Is that not normal? When we've had conversations, they come the next night. Dad, I really enjoyed that last night. Thank you so much. Conversation about sex. Because I'm helping them see it from God's angle. When the world's telling them all of this, who's teaching them? The perversion or the right version? Dads, can I say something to you as I, as, I, as I go in? I'm so running out of time today. There's something mothers can't teach their sons about sex. If you're not talking to your son about masturbation way before their ability to have it. You need to start having that conversation now. Because I promise you, there is an online school that will eventually teach them called Pornhub. And if you're not having those conversations, I put it to you dads that you've absconded your responsibility. And I'm telling you today the biggest reasons why there's not so many men around the world and fathers who do this is because they've abdicated their roles as fathers to their sons. Why? Because your own shame is stopping you. And until you deal with your shame and your own embarrassment, you will never be able to have that conversation with anybody else, let alone your sons. And they need to hear it from you. Because if they're not hearing it from you, I can tell you they will hear it from the world and they will hear it from the internet because that, that horse has bolted. That rabbit is out of its hole and it is gone. And it ain't coming back. And rather than going, you see, here's the problem we've tried to control the internet access you ever try to stop a man getting to a sex drive? And that is because women also have that, but they like to keep it a lot more secret than men. And it's bolted, and the horse is bolted, and we need to start taking responsibility for that. Mothers can teach us plenty, but there's male things that only dads should be teaching their sons. And and the last time I heard anybody, and I said it last week, we don't have daddy's boys in this country. We have mummy's boys. I'm a mummy's boy. But there's elements of me was a daddy's boy. But my dad never sat me down and had this conversation with me. Man, I look back and go, I wish he did. Now, if we were in male company, it was banter. Can I tell you something? Male company and banter won't work. Sit your son down, look him in the eye and start talking about this stuff. Remove the shame and do it early. Can I tell you, if you're waiting until they're a teenager, you're, it's far too late. This conversation needs to start when they're six and seven. When they start talking to you about what's happening in the bath and why this thing down here has gone hard, that's when you start having a conversation about this stuff. Who's awkward? Are you with me? Do you get it? Do you see why this is important that we talk about it? And there's, there's just this huge part of ourselves that have shamed us. And, and here's the other thing we do. When Johnny's two... We Johnny comes up and he starts talking to him or, or whatever. And we have our own shame attached. And we start to, to you know, we, I remember, remember Aaron learning parts of the body and animals. That was interesting when it came to Fox. Just hang that one there. But here's what we do. We go, eye, nose, mouth, ear. Dinky. Don't play with your dinky. And, and we don't even use the, the correct terminology. Because we think, we think giving it names somehow is gonna make it less. Listen very carefully, it's a penis and it's a vagina. And if you struggle saying those words, go have a conversation with Elaine, she'll help you out. <laughs> and the problem is you've attached your shame to a conversation that should never have had shame in it. That's because you haven't dealt with your own shame. And one of my passions is to see people get married, I love it. I get excited when two people who have met together and I play a role in that meeting. It's, it's great. Can I, can I tell you, there's a couple of people that I was counseling and they got together because I recommended this person I was counseling and that person I was counseling. I think you two should have a blind date. Seven months later, they got married. <laughs> Why? Because if someone wants to get married, it's built into them and uh, it's, it's important that we address something. Because in our church, we've got happily married people, but we also have people who were married and aren't anymore and people who are loving, longing to get married and can't. Who's talking to those folks about sex? Who's helping them figure out that a 36-year-old girl or 36-year-old man who's never been married and never been there, how do they manage that? You see, promise keepers and promise rings in the purity movement didn't help them out when they said, keep it to your wedding night. They've been keeping it to a wedding night for a whole long time. That's an awful lot of bottled up sex drive. Who's having that conversation? Who's helping those girls with that? The church has done an absolute poor job at understanding the bigger picture of how we do this. Hebrews 13:4 says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage kept pure in, in the bed. God will judge the adulterer and all sexual immorality. It's statistically proven that people are now getting married much later on in life. Twenties, 30s, and 40s, all over the world, they're getting married later. Now uh, it's not, I I actually think you're not meant to be, if you're not meant to get married, then don't get married but many people who choose to wait until later life, there's something going on, and the question I would ask, if the only way you could have sex was marriage, like, there was nothing else. Think about it, if the only way, the only way you could have sex was marriage, there was no sexual touch, no pornography, no cohabiting, no one night stands, no dating stuff, no masturbation, nothing, the only thing that you could do to have sex was be married. And the outlet for that was marriage. I bet people wouldn't delay getting married so much. And i tell you something, that's actually God's plan. That is God's plan. That's what he set it up. And as soon as we take away all other options, every other option is removed for sex. What's God's plan? We get married. What's the world gone and done? Yeah we begin to devalue marriage. The very thing that God wanted us to value, the world goes and devalue it. Now, I speak to people, nobody starts a marriage thinking they're going to get divorced. Nobody walks up an aisle going, yep, I know in three years' time I'm going to be divorced. It's not how we start life, but inevitably marriage goes down a road and maybe we're not prepared or things haven't happened. And, and Paul comes along and he said this, Paul says it's better to be married than burn with passion. His first statement was, I would, rather, I would rather you be like me, single. That's what, that's what he said. But each man has his own gift from God. And the word gift is the same word used here for the gifts of the Spirit. In other words, it takes a gift of God to be single. It it takes a gift from God to be single. Imagine you're single and you don't want to be. There is a whole bunch of stuff going on inside that world. And, And what happened was God created Adam. And God looked for a helper for Adam. And he looked for a helper among the animals and he couldn't find one. And you remember when God said that he didn't find one, what did he do? Well, he did something really interesting. He put Adam to sleep. It's really funny, when God wants to get our attention, he puts man to sleep the best place for us, boys. <laughs> and he put Adam to sleep, and what did he do? Well, the Bible uses, it says, and the English is really rubbish at this, but it says it took a rib out of Adam. Actually, the word rib is incorrect. It, it says he took a part out of Adam. Now, here's the mind blower for you today, if you've never known this. How many of you know that Adam was created both male and female in the image of God? Oh. How many of you know that when Adam was created, he was created both man and woman? He, he didn't have what's going on down here today. And God put him asleep, and he took a part of him, out of him. Which part did he take out of him? Let me read it to you. So the Lord God caused man to fall into deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, or what the Bible says, a part of him, and closed up the place in his flesh. When the Lord made a woman from the rib, he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, this is now the bone of my bones, and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Woo-man. Woo. (laughs) Because she was taken out of the man. For she was taken out of the man. There was a part of, of the man that was the woman that came out of the man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and the two become one flesh. What is marriage? Marriage is when a woman who's taken away from the man and the man no longer has a woman in him, reemerges together and reunited, like what happened in the garden. God had created it all along. Marriage comes from the word merge. It's when two become one. Can I tell you? It's a recreation. Marriage is the recreation of the Genesis story. Think about it. If Adam was male and female and part of him got missing, when he he wakes up, two things he notices. First thing, something's missing. And the second thing is this. He starts singing that song. I want you back. I want you back. I want you back for good. And, and, and he looks at her and he goes, woman. <laughs> Adam at one stage was both man and woman, and now God brings them together. Why? Because male and female in the act of sex was this bringing back to what God split in the garden, the original design, the original creation. How many of you know that? You see, the church hasn't taught the right version. We've taught the the church has taught the perversion because that's what the world's told them they should teach. But actually, if you tell a kid that today, they go, mind blown. That, that actually, this is what took place. And then you begin to understand the nature of God. Why? why this and this are meant to be united, which is why marriage can only ever be, biblical marriage, the concept of one man, one woman being united. And God does something really interesting. We're now moving from 15 to 18, okay? And God set something up. You see, he put something interesting. Do you ever think about why we give rings to each other? Why that promise of engagement is about a ring? You see, God did something really interesting. A woman has a, has a, has a body of skin around the entrance of her vagina called a haman. He said that word. The hymen. And that that ring that 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 ring is a blood ring. And it has got no other earthly use whatsoever. And the idea of the garden was that a man would take his penis and enter it in to a woman, and a ring, covenant, blood covenant, would be broken in marriage. this is the right version. And what do we do? We get all awkward about talking about it. But actually, it's really important that you understand that God made this as a covenant and he put blood. If you study the idea of blood in scripture, can I recommend a book for you? It's called The Crimson Thread. Oh my goodness, why blood and the sacrifice of blood was so called for by God. And there's this connectivity that God reestablished in the garden, that a man makes love to his wife and it is a covenant. And and I kind of tell you, it's like God, God set this up. And woman was created to be a helper for man. And I need to say that to you ladies, listen to me. And there's a weight on this for me right now. Women have gone and got themselves so freaking independent. You've been taught how to be a lion because your men don't know how to be lions. And that is not the men's problem. It's a fatherless generation problem. And women have gone and got themselves into a terrible state because guess what? They don't even need men anymore. Because men have either hurt them, damaged them, and they've discarded them. And there's a struggle going on And there's a connectivity problem going on because women are so busy being so strong and men don't know how to be strong because their fathers didn't teach them how to be strong. And we wonder why women hate men and have gone and got themselves so independent. Now there's a time when women need to be independent when things go wrong. But can I tell you something? There's just an awful sense in the world right now of things that's gone and got themselves into a really bad state of affairs. 13 times God says he's gonna send a man a helper. Now, I know in a world will tell you that that's rubbish, but can I tell you something? I don't think I'm married to just a helper. I think I've got a lion. Lioness, wouldn't you agree? And here's the thing. We we survive perfectly well. Rachel asked me to put the word obey in her vows. What? I don't need to put that word in there. No, but I want to. I've never... Asked her to obey me in my entire life. But she understood something about what God had set up. That if that was the case, that's what she would do. Now, all you women out there who are offended by that, you need to deal with your offense. It is the way it's cut up. And I want to say this to you as women, as a man and as a pastor and leader of this church, I am so sorry when men screwed you up. I'm so sorry when the men in your life weren't the men that you wanted. I'm so sorry that you're broken because of the men in your life and that they have done, excuse my French, a piss poor job of being the man that God's called them to be. I'm so sorry. It's not the way it's meant to be. But unless we bring ourselves back to I with heaven. We will not get this right and the world will not understand it. And there's a there's been a wittiness on me for this for months. Because as a church, and as fathers, we have to do better at this. And we have to teach the Ethan's of this world, which I think we're doing a good job of for the most part. With a, a play fight last night. Haven't done that in a while. Tried to take me. I won. He said, Daddy, you have a a big advantage of weight than me. (laughs) Which was true. This is the way that God set it up. And it was beautiful. It was an amazing mystery. Oh, gee, my time's gone. Worship band, come on back. I want to finish with this story really quickly. Whenever the Jewish culture created marriage. As the vows were being given historically, the men of both families would come together and they married, and they would take their swords. As the vows were being sent, and they would come up behind the wedding couple, and they would stick their swords in the ground. And as the vows were gone, they would put their swords in the ground. Why? Because This person just wasn't getting married to each other. They were actually marrying family to family. And the family and the men were making a promise that they will guard and help this marriage by their sword and they would do everything to protect it. And that was the culture. And can I tell you something? The wedding didn't start the way it starts today. Oh no, the wedding back then had a tent called a ceremonial tent. They were doing this in Ireland up to about the 50s. Where there was a ceremonial tent bang in the middle of the dance floor. And the party and the music didn't start until something took place. And they would go into the ceremonial tent and everybody would be watching. And they would have to make love. And it was normal. It was the practice. It was the normal way of it. There was no shame attached to it. It wasn't embarrassing. And guess when the party started? 18 again, you're warned. Was whenever a blooded sheet came out over the side of the tent. There was a massive cheer, a celebration and the party started. Why? Because the covenant that God had created in the garden was was taken. The, The marriage was consummated and the celebration could begin. And we've lost this summer along the way because we're too busy being ashamed. Can I say to you today please for the love of God deal with your shame. If this was uncomfortable for you, you felt awkward, you've got shame. I'm standing up here. I couldn't have did this sermon six years ago, seven years ago. Because I had my own shame. But I'm up in here showing you a model that we dealt with our shame as, as, as counselors and leaders. Why? Because we have to have these conversations with people all the time. Dang it, there's, there's not a day goes by in the council room where somebody has come in and has a conversation with me about sex. And if I'm awkward about it, how am I ever going to help them? We have an answer, the right version. Tell everybody about it because the world needs to hear it. See, when I tell kids this, John, I never heard it like that before. Nobody ever told me that that's what a biblical marriage was. And then they go into a world where everything goes and every marriage goes and we'll talk more about that next week. And they wonder why they've got that. But imagine they have the right version and you talk about the anatomy and the biology of all of that and what it's really meant and why that's significant of that ring and that blood covenant was so, so important to God. Now listen to me. If you've screwed up sexually and you've got this all wrong, there is so much flipping grace for you this morning. And God has his ability to come along and deal with the brokenness and deal with the history. You know why I know that? Dealt with mine. And when you get a good marriage and you get something in that environment where, where that just works, and it works the way it's meant to work. You have very happy people. Happy wife, happy life. If you're struggling in your marriage and you're keeping it secret, for the love of God, please come and talk to one of us. You'll not know this, but the amount of marriages that have been saved through this church and in this church are phenomenal. I think up to this point, I personally have 100% success in helping troubled marriages Get back up on their feet. Honestly, I, I do. And there's testimony sitting all over this place today because of that. But also, we've got people like Joanne, who runs her women's ministry so well. Joanne has a story. She got a story of divorce. When I can't talk to her about when I can't talk to you about divorce, guess who I send them to? Joanne, many, many people that I send you all the time. All the time. Sending people, you know, you struggle with divorce? Go talk to Joanne. Why? Because she's walked a journey. And she's still walking that journey. And I'm still walking my journey. And we're all still walking our journey. Why? Because we've got a sex drive. Father, today, I just thank you so much for the beautiful gift of sex, love, and marriage. I thank you for the right version, God. I thank you for your version and not the perversion that you would touch us today in Jesus' name.